Um, okay, so we're a little later starting into the Word of God today than we normally are, so that means we're going to finish later, which means if it turns into 11 o'clock and you need to leave, or if you're online and you need to shut off the computer, I won't judge you. God knows. God knows your heart, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, but I just feel like because we are in these letters from Jesus to us, it's really important that we look at them. And this is only four verses, so it's not super long, and I'll try to be pretty direct. It's actually pretty simple thinking here, but I really feel like it's challenging to us this day, and I want us as a church to hear this challenge and then to allow the Spirit to take it to our lives, let us respond to this challenge. So this past Wednesday night, uh, we're talking about Christian sexuality on Wednesday night here. Uh, Dana and I were not able to be here because we were at a banquet for a ministry that we are connected to that we support called Seeds of Hope. Sometimes we do collections for them and there's a, a thing on the board, the hallway board out here. Uh, they're a wonderful ministry, great ministry. Bill and Brenda who lead that ministry, great people, wonderful folks. And I'm genuinely, I mean, I'm overwhelmed with how God is using them. They are ministering and serving folks who are in devastating need. Needs that some of you have walked with, some of you don't even know how to imagine. Things like deep drug addiction, uh, prostitution as a way to survive, uh, coming out of incarceration, uh, just things that are unimaginable, homelessness. They minister in Camden, New Jersey. And I know they are making a kingdom difference there. I know that God's heart is filled with joy watching them serve the most hopeless, the most helpless among us. So I was thrilled to see what was happening, to hear from some people. We had the guy at our table that's part of their ministries. It was a really fun, good night. But I want to share something that happened just about five, six weeks ago on Labor Day, which is about six weeks ago now. Bill was stabbed just outside his home because they live in Camden, because they serve the Lord in Camden. Now, he's doing well, everything's fine, he's recovered and all that stuff. But it really, if we let it, that really asks us a question, I think. What would you do if you were physically assaulted and injured while living out your calling to serve Jesus? What would your response to that be? If in your path of doing what God asks you to do, serving where God has you serve, you got hurt like that. You got attacked like that. Your life was put at risk, not theoretically, but right there in front of you. And I want to read, I got an email from Brenda after this event. I just want to read to you what she wrote. Just, it's, it's just so different than how we often interact. So it's a, about six or seven lines, but I just want to read you a couple. It says, in a highly unusual event, Bill was injured Monday. He was injured Monday when he was stabbed. <clears throat> Thankfully, the wound was superficial and he was home that evening. The individual was not from Camden and he was arrested and charged. Listen to this next sentence. We will, of course, continue serving the Lord here in Camden. We will, of course, Continue serving the Lord here in Camden. Does that challenge you? I wonder, hope, what would we be willing to shrug off to keep going in our purpose for Jesus? Because that's what that is. It's like, eh, so yesterday you got stabbed, tomorrow, who knows. But you know what? We are going to keep serving Jesus because we know that's where we're supposed to be. What would we be able to say, no big deal, keep going, because 
We know we're here for Jesus. Maybe the problem for some of us is we don't see our lives as having a purpose for Jesus. We get up and we go to work, we, we interact with our neighbors, we make decisions throughout the day, but we never see our lives as having a purpose for Jesus. And if that's you, what's going on, Christian? What, what happened to us? Don't we know that we are here on a pretty simple mission? It's pretty, it may look different for each one of us, but the calling is basically the same. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to share this wonderful Savior with the people around me in my life. And if something gets in the way, and something gets dangerous, if something gets painful, what am I going to do? Could we bear danger, loss, suffering, hurt? I wonder maybe if it's a little bit less than that. I wonder if maybe the enemy's strategy in our lives is not to confront us with life and death scenarios, but things that seem much, much lesser. I wonder if any of us, for our calling for Jesus, would be willing to bear to lose a little traction in our career. Maybe not pursue a promotion. Maybe not be as ambitious if it's what it took for me to live out my calling to Jesus. I wonder if, maybe if you're in school, maybe it means that my, my serving of Jesus means I can't get the best grades in my class. So maybe if you're a real social person, it means I can't be as popular as I would like to be. I can't serve everyone's opinion of me if I'm going to serve Jesus and my purpose. Maybe if I'm someone who likes to be in on all the fun things, I might have to miss out on some of the fun stuff I could do in order to serve Jesus. I wonder if we were willing to sacrifice anything Maybe let me get a little closer to home. Parents, anybody involved in like kids' sports activities, things like that? What if Jesus' calling in your life and your children's life required you to step back and, and your kids to miss out on that? Like, do we here I think is the greatest trap the enemy has right now in the American church is this: you don't have to lose anything to follow Jesus. You don't have to lose anything. And if you do lose something, the presumptive answer is, I must not need to do this. I think it is what has wrung all of the, the supernatural power out of our witness for Jesus. What exactly do we have to lose for Christ nowadays? And if the answer to that is nothing, then I wonder if we're actually following Jesus. Now make no mistake, whether you're following Jesus or not, you face suffering in this life. It is not optional. There is no booth, whether you think there is or not, where you sign up and say, would you like to suffer in this life? Yes, no. Hmm, I wonder. I don't you don't get to choose. We all suffer. Every one of us suffers. But I want you to understand a little bit more than, and some of us suffer because we make ridiculous choices. Like, I'm not talking about the fallout of bad decisions. I'm talking about suffering that seems unfair, unwarranted, unjust. You're trying to do the right thing and, and instead what comes back at you is pain or loss, criticism, attack. I want you to understand this. This is basic Christianity, but it is getting left in the distance. Unfair suffering is explicitly part of following Jesus. It's not optional. It's not off to the side. It is at the very core. And throughout history, it has been. Because Jesus said while he was here, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I'm not talking about a cross. 
right? A little brooch or a pendant or a ring or something on your shirt. What are we talking about? Take up your cross. Go where? Where are you going with this cross? Jesus suffered. And he said, I chose it. If you want to follow me, choose it too. Peter talks about unjust suffering at length in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3. And I am completely confident that every time pain or loss or suffering shows up in our life, the enemy is in our ear saying, how foolish could you be to think that this is worth anything? How could you possibly believe that Jesus cares about you when this is happening in your life? I know that the enemy just keeps hitting that button and speaking those words and trying to to defeat the purpose of the enemy. But I'm also going to tell you that if you look at for just a little bit at the believers who have lived for Jesus throughout history, you know that if people who are trusting Jesus face hard times, they endure when they have a mindset like what we're going to be talking about today in Revelation chapter, one, chapter 2. A mindset that guarantees we will make it through. It is the same mindset that allows James unironically to say, people, when you fall into trials, count it all joy. It was the last time that you suffered, that you faced uncertainty or chaos or a storm, and you felt any kind of joy about it. Where is that connection? I'm going to tell you, when our lives are in the hands of the redeeming God, then what I believe is that no pain or no loss is empty, wasted, or useless. When God, who takes death and turns it into life, is in charge of my life, then when I suffer, it's not just empty and what's the point and this just must mean that everything is is a joke and a farce. No, what it means is this, even suffering isn't negative. It's actually a gain. In Christ, do you believe this? Am I talking crazy here? In Christ, pain is gain. Why would I say that? Did Jesus suffer unjustly? And what came out of it? Life, right? Have have brothers and sisters throughout history suffered and given their lives? Was it a waste or was it gain? See, this is the tradition that I feel like today in our world, in our culture, is like, yeah, that's nice for them. Good job, everybody, but... I want to be comfortable at all costs. I want to read to you this letter that he writes to the church at Smyrna, verse 8 and 9. Let's start in Revelation chapter 2. It says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In order for us to really digest this, I want to give you a little bit of information about Smyrna. There's a couple of interesting things about the city that we're talking about, a city in Asia Minor. Okay? The city of Smyrna is a city with a reputation for being very loyal to the emperor of Rome. They are kind of in Asia Minor. There was a time in which it was up for grabs whether they were going to be a part of the Persian Empire or the Roman Empire. They decided they wanted to be a part of the Roman Empire, and as, as a Result of that, they built an actual temple to the worship of Rome. 
the way of life of Rome. Like, we are so happy to be Romans. It might have been like, I don't know, like pledging allegiance to Rome or something like that. Like people who celebrate, I'm so glad to be a Roman. That, that was them. They were super, super Roman happy. As a matter of fact, some years later, there was a, uh, I guess we could call it a contest, of which city in the empire was going to get to build a temple to the, the current Caesar, the current emperor, Emperor Tiberius. They had some other temples around to Apollos and Aphrodite and other gods, but this was going to be, and they won the contest. The city of Smyrna won the contest. They got to build the temple of Tiberius. It was a beautiful city, maybe the most beautiful in all of Asia. That's what the, the contemporary said. This is the most beautiful city in all of Asia. They actually had a street called the Street of Gold. So it was a city of beauty. It was a city of wealth. It was a city of loyalty to Rome. And every year in this city, they, they required that you made a yearly sacrifice to the emperor. At this time, the emperor was Domitian. And if you, if you went, if you took a sacrifice and you said, Domitian is Lord or Caesar is Lord, and you made the sacrifice, you got a paper. And the paper said you're a loyal subject of Rome. This person is not a threat. This person can be trusted. This person you can do business with. They are a loyal subject of Rome. But if you didn't do it on the yearly basis, you died. It was a capital offense to refuse the worship of Caesar. Now, throughout the first century, Jews and Christians who couldn't do this were kind of exempt. When the Roman Empire took over the Jewish people, there was a lot of fighting. You can read that story in the book of Maccabees and Hanukkah as a celebration of that whole thing and whatever. And at the end of that, the Romans and the Jews came to an agreement where the Jews as a monotheistic people were going to be allowed to worship just their God. They were exempt from having to say that Caesar is Lord. So for the first century, Jews and Christians were exempt because the Romans saw Christians as part of the Jews. But as the century wore on, the Jews were like, uh, they're not with us. We don't like them. They're terrible people. They are not a part of us at all. And they said it so often and they said it so forcefully that eventually Rome believed them. And so here at the end of the first century, the persecution of Christians begins. And the Jews join in. The Jews are like, hey, have you found all the Christians? Because I think I saw one. I, I, you, did you know about this one? Did you know about that? Like the Jews joined in. So when we're reading about their afflictions and their persecutions, we know about those who, are, who say they're the synagogue of the Jews, but they're not. You kind of get some background to the, the suffering that's going on here. The name of the town is Smyrna, which is actually the same word for myrrh. When we go to Christmas in a few months, we're going to talk about gold and frankincense and myrrh, a perfume. The way that that perfume is made is that there is a tree that grows all around Smyrna, and they take that tree, they harvest it, and they crush it in order to get the perfume out of it. And so that name for that town is the name of the, the church, the location where this church is. Jesus comes to these suffering people and he starts with this introduction and he says, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came to life. So is it just a, a flourish at the beginning or is there something that Jesus wants to tell suffering people? I am he who died and came to life. Like, yeah, you're suffering. I went first. Right? I'm not... Like, good luck with all that, people. I'm God. I don't have to do that. No, I 
walked into suffering. I chose it. You're following me, so keep following me because that's the path that I have in front of you. You are suffering. And I know you're just starting the suffering, but you already know what you need to know. You already believe what you need to believe. You already have inside of you what it's going to take to carry you through. The first thing he says is, I see your afflictions. I see your poverty. The word afflictions there is the word for pressure. It is the same word that is used throughout the New Testament for persecution. There is this crushing pressure. It's trying to squash Christianity out of existence. And that is a play on words because in Smyrna, that that word meaning myrrh being one of their main products, it was well understood throughout the whole city that the more pressure you put on the tree, the more perfume you produce. So Jesus says to them, I know how you're being crushed. I know how you're being squashed. I know how you're you're, you're getting hurt. I want you to understand that it's going to produce value. It's going to be worth it. I know your poverty. The word for poverty here is the word for beggars, destitute. I literally don't have money to eat. I don't have a place to live. I am dependent on, would you please help me? Would you please help me? This city did not have a lot of poverty. They were very, very rich. They were very affluent, but they kept deliberately, they kept that affluence from Christians. Because if you don't have the paper, I can't hire you. If you don't have the paper, I can't do business. I can't come to your shop. And so Christians were, were absolutely set aside So he says, I know your poverty. I know how desperate your situation is. And then he puts this parenthetical, yet you are rich. I know you're overwhelmingly poor, but don't forget, you're not. Don't look at what your circumstance is. Don't look at what right now is telling you. Don't look at what everybody would be saying about you. Don't just look at the the bottom line of your bank account. Remember that you have everything that's valuable and you can never lose it. See, sometimes when we go through trials and struggles, we forget the bigger picture. We forget what we've already known. The contrast here is the key to the ability to endure unjust suffering. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know the slander you've endured. I know those who are lying about you, those who are using words to try to harm you and destroy you. These Jews, they are Jews by birth, but like Paul says, they're not followers of Jesus, so they're not genuine children of Abraham, just like Jesus said to them in, in John 8. You, you're of your father the devil. No, no, we're of our father Abraham. No, if you were of your father Abraham, you would believe in me like he did. So Jesus is saying this to the church of Smyrna. I know those who have the the title Jews, but they're not mine. They are actually the synagogue of Satan because they're following Satan in their rejection of God and in their work to silence God's people. So this is what they're in. Sound like fun? Who wants to be a part of the church of Smyrna? Woo-hoo, let's go. So what would your, if you're Jesus, because this is Jesus giving a message to a church that is suffering, that life is dangerous and hard, what would your message be to them? What would be a good message from a caring Savior to people who love Him? Well, let's, let's see what He says, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus' message to this church is, you're getting crushed. It's going to get worse. That's his message to them. How is that a good message? How can that be seen as a message of a Savior who loves them to a people who are devoted to him? How can that be seen as like... 
Sometimes when we read scripture, it challenges us to see the world through a different lens. And what if, as we read that, we start to consider that maybe suffering is not what I think it is. Maybe suffering is something I need. What if suffering is not just a test to see if you can hold on or if you can make it through to the other side, but what if instead suffering is a necessity for the formation of our faith and the depth of the roots of our hope? What if we won't be alive and healthy and and shining as lights in this world without facing suffering? What if we need it? And we keep trying to get around it. And we keep trying to get out of it. And we keep getting scared of going into it. This church has been suffering, and now they will face even more pressure. When we face suffering, especially suffering that makes no sense, loss that seems uncontrollable, remember what we have already learned and experienced about Jesus. Does anybody here know anything about Jesus already? Like, let's go back in our heads here and remember, He died in your place, right? He chose to. Nobody made Him do it. He chose to. And he said, this is the way. Follow me down this path, choosing to walk into suffering. And then, maybe take a look at your life. Are there times in your life where God has been faithful to you and you weren't faithful to him? Have there been times in your life where you suffered, where you faced loss and pain, where you got attacked and you were abused or whatever, and God used it for your good? Remember the things that you've seen him do. Remember the times where you didn't seem to have enough, but God was there and you felt truly rich because you had everything that mattered even though you didn't know how you were going to pay your bills. Anybody ever live there? Remember the times where you felt so lost and you couldn't figure out what to do in your life, but Jesus was there and even though you had no idea how you were going to face all of this, you had some kind of a peace in your soul that went beyond understanding because you knew Jesus was with you. Has anybody ever done that? See, some of us have walked these paths before, but we put them in the past and we walk away from them instead of allowing them to launch us forward into faith. I would say right now, the world looks kind of scary, doesn't it? I don't know if you've noticed, but things don't seem to be going well. Things don't seem to be going towards like kumbaya around a fire and everybody's good, right? What is the Christian response to that? We're answering it by our actions day after day and week after. We're answering it. What is the Christian response to a scary world? Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It is interesting to me that it feels like almost every time we open up the book of Revelation, every time we talk about what's coming, whether it's looking politically projecting down the road or economically in the next recession. The Christian's response almost universally is fear, breathless worry. Do not be afraid of what's about to come. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Now, Jesus is telling you are about to suffer. We're kind of like, we think we might. So I think it should be easier for us to be like, well, I guess we're all right since we don't even know if we're going to suffer. They knew they were going to suffer. But the instruction is the same, isn't it? Why am I not supposed to be afraid? Who's in charge here? 
Who wins here? What are we here for? What are we doing? Are we safe? Are we secure? Jesus says, I am with you. I know the beginning from the end. I will give you what you need. And I have purpose and meaning if you walk with me. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I don't know what you're about to suffer. I know this. There are people right now in our church who are suffering. People who are facing physical uh, like uh, devastation in their life. People who, are, uh, who have lost loved ones, who have lost jobs, who have, have been, been wrecked and ruined by people in their life. I know. We suffer. I don't know where you're going to get tested, but I know that God has a plan for it, and I know that the devil has a plan for it. Do not be afraid. And the other invitation is be faithful. Satan is trying to test you to break you. He's trying to make you believe that you've been wrong about Jesus all along. You were wrong to trust him. You were wrong to follow him. You were wrong to live like the stuff here doesn't matter and that that eternity is a promise you can rely on. You were wrong about giving your life to the Lord. He's going to test them, Jesus says, even to the point of death. And what Jesus' instruction to them is be faithful. Be, word faithful? Full of faith, right? Are are you facing the scariness of our world full of faith? Is that how we're facing it? it? If you don't know, ask some unsaved people how the church seems to be facing the scariness of the world. How are we coming off to them? That God, our God's got it? That I don't mind whatever you do to me. I don't care what happens to me because I know where I'm going and I know what this is all about and I know what I'm here for and this purpose can be served through my suffering and through my deliverance. I don't care. It doesn't matter because I'm here for Jesus. Be faithful. And if we do, to the point of death, there's a victor's crown. Did you see what the victor's crown was? I will give you life. Feel like you're trying to find your life? Like you're just surviving, you're just treading water, you're just making it through the day. Maybe it's because we're not living faithful. Maybe it's because we're living scared and worried. And you know what happens? If you're a worrier, I know how your brain works. You think about all the things that could happen. You've got a great imagination. You've got all kinds of experience. And you can think about, well, what about this and what about that and what about this other thing? Do you know what you never think about? that Jesus will be there when all of that goes down. That you will still be His, that He will still be working for good, that you can still trust Him, that victory is guaranteed, that He has overcome the world, and that no matter what you face, it has purpose and eternal glory to it. You don't think about that, right? Because that would defeat worry pretty quick, wouldn't it? Maybe tomorrow is not yours to hold yet, but He already has it. This is the confidence that we are invited to. This is the light that should shine out from us to the world. And why the world right now is like, Christians, because we're spinning worse than they are. We need to set our feet down on Jesus, holding us and holding tomorrow. How can suffering be good? Most of us have already experienced it. Suffering causes us to look at what we really believe. It is sometimes the only way God can pry out of your hand the thing that should never been in your hand in the first place. Suffering. 
is sometimes the only way we see what is stopping us from the crown of victory and life. In fact, much of our spiritual growth comes through suffering because without it, we would never ask any questions. We would never open our eyes unless the pain was so much that we were desperate to say, what's going on? Right? In Romans 5, Paul tells us that suffering produces hope. Read it sometime. It starts at, you know, when you come into suffering, don't let it, don't let it destroy you because here's what's going on. He kind of lays it out. And at the end of it is, and that produces hope. Hope. Maybe you're living without hope. You're living without peace. You're living without confidence because you don't look at suffering like it's something that is doing good in your soul. In James chapter 1, that, that famous count it all joy when you suffer. Hey, suffering. He says, here's why. Because suffering grows you up. Suffering makes you mature. What we learn throughout Scripture is that suffering is used for eternal good, even sometimes the salvation of others. I think the enemy has us all believing in the power of suffering to destroy us instead of the power of suffering to deliver us and glorify the one that we live for. So the end of this is just verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is for the people of God. And this is for the people of God who have their hearts open. I don't know how to apply this to your life, but the Spirit of God does. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let them open their eyes. Just like the church of Smyrna, you are poor, but you are rich. And your suffering, you can endure it because it is for good. So believer, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know the scars that you all carry, and I don't know the, the, the things that are coming, but He does. His words to us are the same as His words to the church of Smyrna. Don't be afraid. Be faithful even to death. How do you do that? You remember what you already believe, what you already know. Jesus says to His church, when it comes, remember I already knew this would happen. Sometimes when suffering comes our way, we're like, God, did you forget about me? Did I get lost somewhere in the shuffle? Did, did I do something to make you mad? When suffering comes, we get all freaked out about it. And instead of going, God, you knew this was coming. Maybe it's not a sign that you're on the wrong track. Maybe it's a sign that God is playing out His purpose in your life. Something that will echo into eternity. Jesus says, I know the length of the suffering. I know the outcome of the suffering, and I will be with you in it. Understand that no matter what comes into your life, He is in control. And so I can fight my battles on my knees with my hands lifted high in surrender to the Lord who has it all. And I can be confident that when my time is up, when all is said and done, my life given to Him through whatever fire I go, will be shown to be the one that went well, the one that was worth living, the one that mattered. Not the comfortable life, not the life of chasing my desires and my wants, not the, the life of being right and telling everybody else they were wrong. The life entrusted to Jesus, lived like He is faithful, because in Jesus church in Jesus we are guaranteed victory the question is resolved he wins 
and he's with you. Anybody stay up late last night watching the Phillies? Didn't know if it was going to win or not, right? You don't have to do that with Jesus. He does win. We just get to watch how. And he does it with us and for us. Whatever comes our way, you might think, well, this is for someone else. You know someone who's suffering right now. It might be you next week. We decide right now how we're going to face what comes in the days, in the years to come. These words from Jesus to his church in Smyrna are for us. Every time we face uncertainty, storms, trials, pain, loss, especially ones that have no fairness to them. And by the way, church, you don't really want fair. Fair is a bondage. What you want is grace. Fair is we all face the punishment for our sin. Who wants fair? No, I want grace. Right? One of the ways suffering helps us is it helps us to let go of fair and walk into the grace of God. What I want to say to you to close, we'll pray and be gone, but here's what I want to say. We are people of hope. We are people who should live in hope, not because everything goes well, because it doesn't, but because we are His, because He is with us in everything, because He wins, and because His promises to us are true, and they establish us for whatever's coming. So believers, let's turn to God in faith Let's ask him to establish these truths in our souls.